Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have Suyun Kim, who's Associate Professor of Korean Studies at the University of Hong Kong. And she'll be talking about her new book, Imperial Romance, Fictions of Colonial Intimacy in Korea, 1905 to 1945, which was published last year, 2020, by Cornell University Press. Korean experiences of Japanese empire, like those of colonized people in many different places and times, were complicated tangles of relationships running in many different directions, from exploitation and suppression to collaboration and resistance. Perhaps even indifference may have been possible at times, when the imperial state didn't force its way into every corner of personal life. But as Suyun Kim demonstrates in Imperial Romance, there was certainly no shortage of attempts from the Japan-backed authorities in Korea to shape more intimate aspects of Korean life. Managing relations with the Japanese was foremost among these, and the authorities went as far as promoting intermarriage between colonizer and colonized peoples. The official messaging was accompanied by cultural output from films to short stories and novels, which focused on Korean-Japanese romance, and intriguingly, quite a number of Korean writers were among the authors of the latter. While some of their works stick relatively closely to the imperial script regarding idealized Korean-Japanese unions, most of them also reflect, wittingly or unwittingly, the political, ethnic, linguistic, and of course also affective complexities of romantic relations in an imperial setting. As Suyun Kim shows by placing the works of several prominent authors alongside official documents and media from the time, all of this offers an intriguing window into a lesser-studied dimension of empire at the interpersonal level, shedding light on questions of identity, domination, and sentiment amid a colonial history which remains fraught to this day. It's therefore a great pleasure to have the author here to tell us more. So I'll say Suyun Kim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me and thank you for a great introduction. Well, uh, yes, it's only a fraction of what's in the book, but uh, I hope uh, we'll be getting into a lot more detail as we talk. Um, Before we do, though, uh, perhaps I'll begin by asking you uh, something of your own uh, sort of academic background and how you became interested in the topic of Korean experience under Japanese empire uh, and its, you know, representations and so on. Right. Okay, uh, so currently I'm teaching at the University of Hong Kong in Korean Studies Department. Um, so, uh, well, it's a Korean Studies program in School of Modern Languages and Cultures. Um, but my specialty, so I would say my specialty is modern literature and culture and colonialism and imperialism, gender, sexuality, race. But um, Recently, I, maybe I can talk it later more. Recently, I've been um, doing research more on the, the Cold War era and more popular literature in Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, basically that I kind of consider myself as a literature scholar, but with a spectrum that leans to culture studies. That's sort of, that comes from um, 
my background in my background of training. So I actually did um, MA in French literature in Korea and mm. also MA in Korea, but then comparative literature. Mm-hmm. Then I moved to um, University of California, San Diego in the U.S. to pursue my Ph.D. So in this kind of rare program called Department of Literature. So it was combination of cultural studies, comparative, uh, comparative literature, American studies. And there, I think I developed more sense of uh, cultural studies perspective way mm-hmm. of looking at literature work, actually. So I had the kind of um, seminars and uh, training in history, Asian histories, Japanese history, uh, Korean history, but also um, with uh, um, theoretical training in culture studies theories, post-colonialism, feminism, and whatnot. So I think that my project sort of came into a being when I was interested. I started my project, I, I guess my PhD project, uh, more interested in looking at contemporary South Korean nationalism. Mm-hmm. But as I learned, kind of studied more of like 20th century, early 20th century and colonialism, and then I found this kind of material about Nesan uh, so Nice and Itai, and colonial assimilation, and also this kind of uh, writings about intermarriage. That sort of, I, that I developed a new project there. Mm-hmm. So my, um, so but in my literature, some sort of Korean literature training actually comes from a lot from uh, individual advising and then my research year in Korea, where I uh, studied at the uh, Korean literature department, um, like taking seminars and joining like various study groups in Korea. And also I did some study groups in Japan. Um, but so this... I think because of my background, I'm not from straightforward East Asian department or East Asian studies department or Korean literature department. So that's I my project sort of brings in more um, different, I guess, like different perspective and mm. sort of the perspective that if you're coming from straight out like Korean literature training, you you kind of tend to not see this kind of perspective. Mm-hmm. So. I, I feel like I bring in more um, conversation at the table for Korean literature perspective, Korean liter- literature scholars, and then also from uh, broader culture studies, global in- imperialism or imperialism, colonialism studies that I bring sort of uh, different material. So, yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I think that becomes very obvious, you know, throughout the book with your use of a variety of different source materials, you know, not just purely the, the literary works, but also some of the um, historical documents that we'll get on to discussing. Um, but I'm just curious, I mean, uh, you mentioned there how you started out with a perspective on contemporary nationalism, or at least an interest in that, um, and then sort of went back uh, to the Korean uh, literature and, and, and the kind of authors that, that feature in this book. How aware were you, uh, I mean, you know, having, having grown up, I guess I'm curious, given that you also placed some of this history into contemporary mm-hmm. perspective, how much are ideas like, uh, well, this Nesan Ilte, uh, this idea of Korean-Japanese oneness during the um, uh, during the imperial period, and how much are the authors 
that you draw on actually people that Korean people know about today, you know, from the, from the nationalist lens, from the post-colonial lens, what was all of the material that come came into this, your PhD and then the book completely new to you? Or had you heard about some of it sort of before anecdotally or growing up or anything right. like that? Right. Um, so I think, I think against my um, earlier project, I was thinking about the contemporary South Korean nationalism in the frame of looking at the culture production and then uh, knowledge production. So in that sense, I'm still looking at the knowledge production of the colonial period. But then how much I was aware of this kind of intimate relationship in the colonial period, it's, I think it was very limited before I started uh, doing research. Um, so... I think it, there there's a kind of two dimension here. I think one is the like a public discourse, public or popular discourse of how South in South Korea people remember Japanese colonialism, and I think also in in the from the nineties, uh, in the nineties when I was in the university uh, student, that that was the time. I think the even the public discourse, public like cultural films or TV dramas brought in more different nuanced perspective of the colonial period. Whereas like previous, previously, like you'd only kind of see like Japan, colonial Japanese uh, period as dark period, oppressive and violent, um, and then emphasis on this, all these atrocities. But then actually from the nineties, uh, because of probably po- uh, post-colonial discourse and then because of like various global kind of movement and uh, exchange and connections, um, even popular uh, product, popular culture start um, emphasizing on the modernization, urban modernity or modern girl, modern boy. And actually that was the colonial period was like the time that women start going to school. So women's education uh, was uh, more available than before. So this kind of things were um, appearing, start appearing. But at the mm-hmm. same time that that the 90s, that was the part where the comfort woman issues start to coming out. And as the university student, I was also part of like comfort woman um, protests and, you know, like a student kind of activism uh, stuff. So I was, the, I think that um, I was aware of that it was different. There's like different stories. It's not just uh, mainstream oppressor and oppressed mm-hmm. kind of narrative of the colonial period. But the mm-hmm. academic discourse, I think, is different. Um, it's a different set. So there, there, I think academia in the academia researching uh, research, they um, they were aware of the certain intimacy or certain kind of modernization process in the colonial period, but then still the mainstream academia was uh, emphasizing on the 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 oppress, oppressor oppressor and then oppressed or the like chinil discourse, like who are the pro Japanese collaborators. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so the the writers that I'm actually um, using in my books are these well-known writers um, in my use, like uh, from either by Korean public education or in the college, university, in like my own readings, that there are major writers that I know their major works. And then I read their major works. That's, you know, like kind of common readings. But then 
there are some the the, the writings that I use are um, not so well known to the mm. public, mm. and in the academia, maybe if you're Korean uh, Korean literature majors, like maybe you like uh, read it or hear it in the lectures, um, scholars study them a little bit, but um, there are uh, they are very limited, and then for the Japanese language novels or short stories were getting more attention or getting translated into Korean only from the 90s. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it was sort of frontier of Korean um, Korean literature or Korean history research that this kind of, there was this multilingual dimension. It's not just monolingual Korean literature production, mm -hmm. but there were uh, people writing in Japanese and then that could be part of the Korean literature. Right. Yeah, I think kind of uncovering things that are somewhat known but offering a new, a new, new dimension is exactly as you said. Uh, one of the really fascinating things about this book, you know, it's aware. It's we, we're aware that there was a an empire. We were aware that there were the atrocities and the oppression that that you mm -hmm. mention. Um, and these these authors are, uh, I guess, yeah, somewhat known to to people. But there are sides to their work that are unknown, and there are sides just as there are sides to the imperial project, uh, which have not been kind of explored in great detail um i mean we, we've already kind of stepped into the some of the contents right. of how you set up the book so so we may may as well uh, delve a bit further into how you set up the the project in the introduction here um because uh you've mentioned already something of how you know the perspective you know as you were becoming aware of it i guess was changing on the japanese colonial past from a from a korean angle and, and a kind of more more nuanced or, or layered uh, interpretations and, and representations of it uh, were occurring, you know, from the, as you've said, I think from the 90s. Um, so I guess the question then is what, why is it that uh, that, you know, sort of change happened when it did? Why is it that uh, intimate relationships under Japanese colonization, which you cover, been, uh, why have they been covered up so much? Uh, and, and what is it that has brought about that reinterpretation uh, as you see it? Mm. Okay. Um, yes. So, I. So then, I guess the from the academia. I think. Well, okay. So the public, I guess, like a public memory kind of things. If it gets too, um, too intimate, I think it's still, um, it, it still in remains in the uncomfortable territory for the public. Mm. So that I say, I talk about like in the opening of introduction, I talk about this Ijungs uh, of the Painters exhibition in 2016. That's pretty recent. Even recently that, um, you know, when there's a uh, talk about, oh, there's Korean Japanese marriage, intermarriage, and then there were children, mixed children, um, this kind of thing about like a public figures, I think is still a little bit uh, people are reluctant to accept in South mm. Korea. Mm -hmm. um, but then in academia, I think why why this kind of intimate relationship were not covered or not studied um, in the academia, I think it is uh, it is various things, but then there's a definitely disciplinary limit, I think, mm -hmm. how to approach this. So there are historians looking at the desonite uh, or like a policies or legal changes and the literature people looking at um, some fiction, some novels, but then I think uh, uh, people were reluctant to look at the whole, uh, the together, like the connected way of things at the mm -hmm. time. Um, 
So that's in the 90s. Yeah, like I said, in the 90s, it was slowly coming out, uh, revealing this like uh, this intricate connectedness um, in the colonial era that's, uh, that uh, intimacy and the intimate relationships were part of the very important uh, management point for the Japanese colonialism. So when you study history, like you cannot ignore this kind of marriage and the sexual relationship and cohabitation and the romance and all these things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's also, I think, the gender studies uh, aspect of it uh, was not so supported in the past. So... Um, it's yeah I like I said like I think I emphasized the book uh, many times it's a combination of things and and there because of the intricate nature and the disconnectedness that if you sort of uh, characterize it as like one thing just like oh it's just you know very little number of intermarried people because mm. the statistic statistically it's it doesn't match the reality but then statistically um, some if you look at the archival archival numbers or the Korean uh, the Japanese colonized uh, colonial governments the white book like white papers kind of numbers that it looks like just small population who mm. the South uh, the Korean and the Japanese intermarried couples but um, so you kind of like uh, pass it and ignore it for a long time. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that's yeah, that was the one of the issues that people general historians or like people generally thought like oh there was a like small number of exception. But oh, then yeah, but then I think in the nineties as you look at more and more, then you see that uh, it was actually a big phenomenon that the writers were aware of it and the Korean elites, uh, especially men they really seize the opportunity to have this kind of intermarriage discourse as part of uh, Korean men's um, to um, sort of emphasize their equality to as a Japanese and then raise their status in this like empire hierarchy, imperial hierarchy. Right, right. So it sort of speaks of something a lot bigger, even if statistically, you know, yeah, we can look at uh, the raw figures and suggest that it was a, uh, or at least understand how, how it's been seen as a marginal phenomenon in a Korean context. But of course, yeah, as, as you, I think, explained very well, it sort of represents something a lot more significant about the overall project and about the response to it. Um, I guess another development that you draw attention to as far as perspectives on these aspects of empire is concerned are broader you know changes in i guess you know our academia not just in a korean context but more globally how how empire has uh, been co- come to be understood from a you know more nuanced uh, intimate or affective and gendered perspective too um so could you say something about how the japanese uh, approach the japanese imperial approach to the intimate korean japanese relationships um compared to those that you know we can see in other kind of global context in, in various European empires, you know, British or Dutch or, uh, or or French or anything else, as well as other sort of yeah imperial experiences. What, what, what did you see to be the, the useful points of comparison and difference between Japan and, and other imperial sort of formations? Right. So in the beginning, I think um, I, I initially thought that uh, Japan was an anomaly and, you know, about this kind of promoting intermarriage uh, between colonizer and um, colonized mm-hmm. subjects. 
but it's actually it turns out it's actually uh, really part of the greater global imperial um, discourse imperialism so in, even the European and the American US imperialism um, on the surface like if you remember like um, the 20th century early, or early 20th century mid 20th century that there are like uh, anti-misogynist law and then like marriage like the war banned between you know like white white and color like this kind of division um, existed but then as I looked at um, like uh, previous research is more there uh, there's definitely this uh, the the movement of imperialism development of imperialism had this uh, managing point of like uh, the intimate relationship and the sexual relationship were always part of the management points so they were uh, promoted actually like or a lot let's say like they were allowed mm-hmm. um, in the in the beginning I guess the beginning of the imperial kind of rule colonial rule um, in Asia um, Southeast Asia or Africa or Americas but then when it comes to um, in the consequences when they see that the mixed children are coming back to the metropole like European centers or the Americas that um, in in the US then you need to tighten up the borders, tighten up the like the the boundary of the citizenship, and then what makes European white European European or the mm. white American the white Americans white U.S. um U.S. Americans. So, so it's actually um the there were times that there were um there were okay, let's say that there were always the imperialisms global imperialisms were always managing the intimate and sexual relationship so this could be you know like banning the marriage but then allowing sexual cohabitations mm-hmm. or like a short-term short-term relationship but then say like you cannot get actually legally married but then you know like living together is totally fine or they actually like promote like yes you know like live with live with a uh, local woman uh, for British, like British soldiers, soldiers, that kind of case. Um, but they, you know, like you cannot legally marry them. Um, so in a way, there were always like uh, always the protections, but then also promotions of the sexual relationships. But I think what uh, Japanese imperialism, what we think it's different and what we kind of look at it differently because it's, it is a latecomer. So it started like late late 19th century. So in the 20th century, so they already have this, um, they saw, witnessed like other imperialism, how they dealt with um, the local population, like uh, the marriage and the intimate relationship, how they dealt with it. So it, because it's uh, relatively new, uh, from the beginning, I think um, Japanese uh, imperialism, Japanese uh, metropolitan center or um, they knew they had to manage this mm. kind of intimate relationships. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So that yeah. But then the other thing is like Asia. Um, I think it's what also what makes Japanese imperialism interesting is because it's, they were conquering nations within the na- uh, within Asia. So, I mean, the Koreans and Chinese, like Koreans and Taiwanese uh, people in Taiwan, they looked similar. But also they were different. They were from different language. They have different language background, different cultural 
background customs, uh, different traditions, and then Korea like had kingdoms like uh, separate kingdom, completely different from um, Japan and China. So it's uh, I think because of the uh, closeness to Asia and then sort of geographic closeness um, that makes um, enables to, uh, Japanese population to move to Korea and Taiwan, right? So they can settle into um, the colonial territories and then become like a, a settlers, colonial settlers. So that, uh, that's also a different dynamic, I think, having like sending massive population, like middle class or working class population to the colonized territory from the beginning uh, in the 20th century. That's that's what makes things different than um, European and U.S. imperialism. Mm-hmm. Rather than it's not like it's not like Japan just came out with this idea of intermarriage and promotion of intermarriage, like from the first time in the history of the Earth, right? Right, right, for sure. No, I think uh, those comparisons, yeah, are certainly very useful and, and help, as you say, to kind of relativize uh, this experience and, and understand both the exceptional and particularistic aspects of the Japanese imperial project and those that are helpfully, you know, parallel or like helpfully compared to uh, those elsewhere in the world. Um, I think that's a really great uh, aspect of of the book as a whole, actually. Um, You've already mentioned briefly uh, the kind of responses to that project that, you know, there's a kind of imperial policy vis-a-vis mixing between uh, Korean and Japanese and, and other, I guess, Japanese imperial subjects elsewhere too. Um, but there's a, you know, there's a response to that on the ground, which, yeah, as usual in, in imperial um, context, I guess, plays out in, in, in very complicated ways. So uh, you've, you mentioned briefly that, you know, there's a, a dimension of masculinity to this, perhaps a, a kind mm. of efforts for uh, men and, uh, to assert some kind of parity or, uh, you know, participation um, in even in unequal power relations in an imperial context, um, but more broadly on a gender sort of uh, along gender lines, how did the both the promotion, the official promotion of this relationship or intimate relations between Japanese and Korean subjects, um, and the response to it, how did that actually unfold along gendered lines? You know, both in terms of what the authorities were saying and in terms of how you know, cultural figures were representing it, uh, I guess, bluntly speaking, you know, was it more men from one side being encouraged to partner with women from the other side or vice versa? Uh, Could you say something about that? Right. I think this is like a really interesting point, I think, uh, in the colonial Korea. Uh, When the promotion or this assimilation policy were like generally promoted in Korea uh, from the beginning, that the marriage intermarriage idea was thrown in because of the royal uh, wedding, um, which I can uh, yeah talk a little bit later. But then, mm-hmm. um, so the the model kind of idea is like oh, if Koreans marry Japanese, then the Jap- uh, Koreans will become Japanese more easily. So the assimilation process could be easier. Because you learn it, learn Japanese language and customs at home, and then your children will be Japanized children. But the combination of like how like is it Japanese man, Korean woman, or Korean man and Japanese woman? I think the 
the Japanese government did not have a, like a clear idea like how gender um, combination might be. But then the people in the newspapers or where they talk about this, like the, and then Korean elites, uh, mostly men, male writers, men, men, male elites, and then uh, public figures and the writers, when they respond and then when they sort of uh, play out this idea, is was mostly um, not always, but then mostly, mostly for a Japanese a Korean men marrying Japanese women. So it's it's that's in that sense, it's like opposite of like you know like a mainstream. <clears throat> Um, uh, Japanese imperial, uh, the I mean global imperialism idea, where like British soldiers, uh, British men marrying local Indian women, or in the <clears throat> Dutch or British uh, in the Southeast Asia. So it's actually Korean men were thinking about like, oh, let's marry Japanese women. Mm. Um, so that's gen- that kind of gender combination. I think is um, different, and then that's why. Um, there, in the writings that I um, talk about, there's can, kind of like their Korean ima- Korean male's imagination of what Japanese femininity would be. So in that way, having this supportive Japanese uh, woman as your partner, like romantic relationship partner or your married uh, your wife, that sort of validates the also Korean masculinity. And also that your status in this imperial hierarchy. So, I mean, for Korean men, like there's a there's more reason to write about this kind of characters, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that the yeah the Korean men, um, you know, living or studying in in Japan and then like dating Japanese women or in Korea, like you you meet Japanese women and then immediately because you you speak Japanese and then you know you have like intimate connection with Japanese women. Um, so in that sense, I think gender representation is unexpected, but then it's I th- it still kind of falls within the Korean patriarchy discourse. Mm. Mm. Um, so I thought I find that very interesting actually. Yeah, well, I mean, we should say that in terms of the material you're drawing on, whether that's, uh, I guess, that the, the kind of Korean um, cultural output, the, the the novels and and also some, I guess, uh, Korea-based uh, films um, mm-hmm. are produced by and large by male uh, authors or, or, or you know creators. Um, just as we would assume that the uh, government policies from the Japanese side or the Korean government general side are also produced by men. So mm-hmm. it's an interesting, I guess, interaction there between uh, differing discourses, at, you know, all focused in a sort of male world and male negotiations of that colonial context, perhaps. Um, not to, you know, not to the complete exclusion, of course, of, uh, of, of female figures, but the actual producers of this stuff, as you say, it's a very patriarchal dynamic throughout. Um, I guess uh, my sort of last question about the overall framing uh, relates to what you were just saying about the the, the kind of response and and the participation of um, of Korean uh, authors and so on in this uh, process, um, whether they were writing in Korean or in Japanese. Um, you 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 have to tread a de- delicate line. I think you do a great job of uh, tracing both the domination and the dynamics of of. Uh, you know, kind of subjugation that we've already discussed, uh, which are part of the, the, the Japanese imperial project, while also documenting 
the response and the participation, you know, uh, again, albeit under very unequal power dynamics. So just personally for you, you know, as, as a, as a, as a scholar and as a, as a person documenting this uh, dynamic, were there particular challenges you found uh, when it came to balancing the perspective of, you know, something closer to uh, the historic nationalist narrative about Japan's empire being uniquely uh, oppressive uh, with the idea that there were Korean actors participating in the overall projects? How did you kind of tread a line between those two aspects? Mm. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, so I guess like, uh, I think one thing I had to like tell myself when I'm kind of dealing with this kind of document is that, um, you know, archival, archival documents, texts, they're, they're not just factual. There's, it's also, um, production of knowledge. So then it's, it has like a stories behind it, like, like, like just what you said, like about this, like a colonial um, elite, uh, the Japanese elites who um, came up with this kind of policies, they are also all male, right? Mm-hmm. And so then you have to be aware of like how things function. And also the literary text, uh, film, literature and film, and then I try not to treat them as like the evidence of like history, historical evidence then they these literatures are also production of knowledge and they have um, more kind of nuanced stories. So, um, but then the, I guess like the Korean um, masculinity, I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm catching your questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so right here. Um, no, no, it's, it's entirely, I think, no, I think you're, you're absolutely are. I guess, I guess, uh, I, I think any study of an imperial project is, uh, you know, it's, it's challenging to document the role of colonized people in the imperial project without suggesting that, you know, they were welcoming it or that everyone was happy, you know, because of course that's not the, that's not the, the, the kind of wouldn't be an accurate representation. So um, I guess it's how do you give voice to uh, the, the, the colonized people without suggesting that they were all very willingly participants in the, in the empire. Oh, I see. Okay. Okay. Um, huh. I think, so I guess I'm running like, um, against the uh, previous kind of conversations, right. Um, the previous, um, studies and what I want to, I think, uh, point out is that the, these colonial elites, um, there were, okay, so previously there were kind of clear marker of like, who is Chinil? who is this pro-Japan, right, mm-hmm. activist, and then who are, like, resistant, like, uh, resistant fighters. And then, so, like, writers, like, Yi Gwangsu was, it's, like, somebody so huge and so famous, and then you read his works in your, like, middle school, high school, um, in the textbook, but then you are aware that he turned into this pro-Japan person, pro-Japanese and then he was like a promoter for like a conscriptions um, and then Korean participation, Korean men participation in the war. Mm-hmm. Um, so, th- but then the the more kind of nuanced in, in conversation in academia is that, you know, he's not all that just pro-Japan, 
right? So he had this nationalist background, but then the way he turned into the pro-Japan was like he was actually thinking about Korean nation, uh, the future of Korean nation, and then see this assimilation and then participation, full participation to the Japanese war was the only way for Korean survival. So that kind of like you give excuse to like uh, elites participation. Um, so then, you know, the response to that kind of discourse is like, oh, it's kind of gray area. Colonial period was great, a gray area. Uh, and it's they were uh, they had a very hard time making choice. Um, but then also another excuse, giving excuse for this, um, the collaboration or um, war participation. So I think my my take is that um, it's not yeah of course it's not clear cut it's not just single layer, and but then when you look at like the discourse so um, the writings about the intimate relationship like how these like Korean men like act around Japanese family Japanese woman um, or the Korean other Korean people like Korean also Korean women. Um, having relationship with Japanese men, then I think the questions rising from that is more kind of asking about the Korean identity. Mm. So rather than like thinking about collaboration or non-collaboration like uh, against it, it, you're like truly really thinking about uh, if I if I speak fluently fluent Japanese, if I like mimic the Japanese, customs and habits at home am i am i going to be treated equally as japanese Mm. am i going to be the same and is my assimilation successful then will i be treated as complete japanese without any prejudice right right and yeah i think you you outlined very clearly the kind of um the complexities of yeah both the, the the nuances occurring within Korean society and as you've said you know one important dimension here is a class aspect too to those who were involved in uh, working with uh, Japanese authorities and those who were obviously mostly just on the receiving end of what was coming out of the, the imperial project um, but also exactly yeah as as you say there the attractions in some ways of that you know sort of more neutral ideas like modernity and uh, sophistication and these things which you know can appear to be uh, things that anyone would want to do, despite the fact that they're arriving via uh, an imperial kind of uh, yeah, um, dynamic of oppression, um, and and how you, you you struggle to yeah, as you said, make as a, as a colonized subject become equal to the colonizer. Although, as you I think point out in your analysis, uh, that was often never really achieved. You know, even when they were trying their absolute best to be as Japanese as possible, many of these figures were ultimately still treated, or the characters in their books and so on were also treated still as um, subordinate. Um, in any case, um, that, that kind of broad topic is is actually quite often, uh, or quite a lot of the focus of chapter one, where you talk about home life and the promotion of certain kinds of relationships, of romantic love, and, and you know, also new kinds of, uh, you know, uh, sort of romantic uh, entanglements under uh, under colonial modernity um, as well as you know how people should live in their home lives and, and what the stakes of some of that uh, ideas of some of those ideas of sort of transforming oneself into a Japanese uh, 
imperial subjects or even a Japanese person were in Korea. Um, but moving beyond that, um, chapter two deals with a topic you've already mentioned as well, uh, this idea of um, the promotion of uh, a kind of uh, top-level marriage between Korean and Japanese royals, that mm-hmm. is uh, Prince Eun and uh, Princess Pangza. Um, so could you say something more about the sort of uh, idealization of these relationships as promoted from the very top there. Uh, how did this particular royal wedding serve as a model for the kind of Japanese-Korean unions that were uh, promoted? Um, and how did that kind of actually interact with what was possible on the ground among Korean and Japanese subjects? Right. So I think what is interesting about this um, royal marriage, Yun and the uh, Princess Pangja, Ibangja, or Masako, is that the um, from the beginning, I think Yun was uh, sent to Japan for education. So that was like 1907. So like um, even before annexation. So when Korea became protectorate in 1905. So the metropole Japanese government was like planning to have Yun educated um, in this like a royal um, schools, the schools that the Japanese royal kind of uh, families attend. So he was educated there. And then from the early on, like they were saying like uh, he needs to marry Japanese woman. Um, so so that's um, the, the engagement announcement was in 1916. The actual wedding act happened in 1920. But within that, time space the the korean uh the the korean language newspaper the one and only until 1920s uh was like uh constantly promoting uh intermarriage the talking about this royal like uh expected this royal wedding and and how this uh this was a model kind of wedding um uh uh model marriage between a uh, union between korean and japanese so that was sort of used as a publicity icon in the media. And then if if there's this top-down uh, marriage happening, the newspaper and the other kind of elites will start asking, like, uh, is it going to be possible for regular people, right? The common people. And then the newspaper keep raising like issues about uh, difficulties of family registrations and then how the government is going to change it. Um, but at the same time, they also show showcase like series of intermarried couples in mm-hmm. Korea who are living there already. And then like how this is actually really good for the family, really good for the men, and then really good for the future of the nation, right? So that was kind of a used point for... Uh, reference for many people and because i think because of the the royal wedding i think uh colonial government actually had to process um this family registration system they had to clean up that the any like any korean uh person can marry japanese person legally possible Mm. so they had to move on uh, quickly on that but then as I pointed out like in the book that actually you know the it was a little bit uh, random it was up to really district uh, person <laughs> district person staff in charge uh, that you could actually register or not register so until like really late 1930s the complete Korean Japanese, marriage in the family registration without any loophole or any difficulty 
um, it was not possible like until ne- uh, late 1930s. So actually, mm. this kind of because of double legal system of the Japanese as uh, mainland legal system, and then the Korea has a separate legal system, and then separate like a, reg- a family registration system. This the merge of the two was never like um it was it, it never happened it wasn't ever, ever merged but then kind of like uh uh making uh allowing this like subjects to like move around that that was like uh that was a challenge for the colonial government and the metropolitan government so they were mm. actually kind of slow you can say they actually slowed the process of um, making enabling people to uh, register the marriage freely, but mm. but on the other hand, I'm like I'm talking a little bit too much here. But then on the other hand, if you think about the marriage and the weddings, it's actually communal. It's a it's a, a communal or customary practice. So even without the legal registration, if you're married, you're married. Like your your family acknowledge it and community acknowledge it, then you are married, right? Mm. So. So the legality lacked behind, but then there were on the ground, there were people who were having cohabitation in diverse way. Um, so it could be marriage, it could be like short-term arrangement, concubinage, like, you know, mm-hmm. like second or third wife, I don't know. But it's uh, there were diverse way of uh, living arrangements at the mm-hmm. time. Yeah, I think that's a fascinating kind of, way that you chart that these different and often kind of uh, conflicting or at least countervailing regimes of, uh, of, of of or spheres of relating right there's the instincts of a very uh homogenizing or rationalizing kind of ultra modern uh modernist imperial project which wants to make sense of everything wants to formalize everything in the documentary regime there's the the kind of existing obviously uh korean uh, household registration and so on. I guess there are also customary ideas about the importance of hometown, the importance of origins, and uh, how that is compatible with marriages across yeah, across the seas to somewhere completely different. Um, and then, as you say, also that the kind of variety of understandings that people have about what they're doing compared to what the uh, what the law is able to accommodate. Um, so it's a yeah, it's a it's a, a really useful, I think, um, uh, complication of. Uh, a relationship which we might have assumed otherwise is, is was very one way or very monolithic um but you know if that's if that's the broad picture of the early kind of period of the empire in, in korea um you know a kind of slightly looser or messier um uh, sort of state of affairs uh, i think the latter part of the book chapters three to five you you sort of portray a much more uh tight and stricter uh kind of approach which uh, you know i think Many people are familiar with the imperial Japanese history would be will be familiar with that kind of more wartime uh, homogenizing uh, approach under Kuomintang uh, right or Huang Minhua mm-hmm. uh, this idea of sort of greater homogenization. So, how did this change manifest itself uh, when it came to Korean Japanese unions uh, and expectations around you know cultural or ethnic transformation that would happen you know as a result of a Korean-Japanese marriage after that 1930s period when, when things started to get stricter? Hmm. Um, so the, I think it's because I'm looking at the literary representation, um, but actual, the actual number, it, we have very limited statistic, but actual 
uh, number. I cannot say like actual, actual, because it, it is the statistic we know we have, uh, we know the statistic have gaps. Mm. Um, but it generally increased the intermarriage number generally increased in the 1930s. And then if you go to late 1930s and early 1940s, there's a, um, there's a massive number of, um, there was a bell sound. Is it? Is that okay? Maybe you need to cut that. That's fine. No, no. I, I think it's nice. A little bit of texture. That's great. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I think it was, it was my computer. Um, and the, so the in generally in the yeah late 1930s and the early 1940s there is a, a mass number of Korean unmarried men moving to Japan for as either labor recruitment or conscription and then that I think metropole need to track down so the the census becomes more rigorous and then uh, the number dramatically uh, increase in the late 1930s and the 1940s just because the census tracking down system became more vigorous. Mm-hmm. And uh, for the literature side, I think we do see more um, more frequent appre- appearance of intermarriage or romance literature uh, from the late 1930s and the, and the early 1940s. That's one one reason is because of the venue limitations and the censorship regime. So after 1935, a Korean uh, proletarian literature group were like was disbanded, and uh, it wasn't possible to write about anything against the empire, uh, against the Japanese uh, imperialism anyway. And the, I think the topic also. Uh, was later uh, was considered rather kind of uh, empire friendly, so it mm. definitely could like avoid certain censorship, right? Mm. So I think that's why this kind of literature number number or frequency of the appearance of this literature in these venues kind of increased in mm. the late nineteen thirties. That's that doesn't mean that you know like there was no uh, population of intermarriage before or like a, there's a minimum population of intermarried, actually uh, intermarried people. And then late 1930s, all of, become, all of a sudden, like intermarriage couples number has like uh, tripled or like quadrupled. Um, that's why the literature has increased. So these are kind of separate uh, mm. things mm. that I want to acknowledge. Um, but then the... I think like one thing maybe um yeah for example I can say like um uh Yosok's like the the my chapter in the Yosok I talk about the Yosok's like uh short stories uh written in Japanese Ajamino show but the so the venue itself the where Ajamino show was published is uh, a magazine titled Kungmin Munhak or Kokumin Pungakko is a national literature. Mm-hmm. So it's the the magazine was launched to in compliance of the Kominka, right? So it's uh, this Korean writers group had to come up with a new kind of literary magazine, literary journal that's in line with the Japanese imperialism. And then the in the initial inaugurational uh, issue, Yosok wrote about uh, this Korean-Japanese couple living in Seoul. So 
in that sense, this kind of kominka and the the heightened sense of the desonilche like brought, um, uh, more kind of like uh, yeah, more appearance of the literature. But at the same time, when, uh, when you really read the the story closely, then you can see this all kinds of agonies about the couple, intermarried couple. Uh, living in kind of urbanized modern society, but at the same time, like um, questioning about the identity, like Koreanness and Japaneseness, mm. and so it's a it's so in a way that there's a limit of this venue and the limit of language and the the readership brought certain topics to be published, but mm. within that venue within that publication you still have this all sort of questions that uh, certainly does not just comply with uh, imperial logic right exactly yeah that kind of goes outside the bounds of the the official portrayal of harmonious uh, you know kind of problem-free <laughs> union i guess um and you you bring in literature you know we haven't had much chance to talk in detail about lots of the uh, culturally rich literary examples you you have i mean that can be something that listeners uh, get the book to look into themselves um but you bring in literature that both di- deals head on i guess directly with korean japanese romantic relationships and so on that where that's the main topic or the main theme of the mm-hmm. uh, work and also works that kind of just happen to have you know characters in them who are uh very you know kind of like p- probably Korean Japanese couples, or, or, or and so on, and, and I think you uh, bring out there some of those ambiguities really that exist where you're watching a film or, or reading a book where you think that the characters are probably somebody is Korean or someone is Japanese, but even in the actual writing, it's not always totally clear because of what you also highlight about the way people change their names, the way people spoke languages often very fluently. You know, Korean people uh, again, especially elites, spoke extremely good Japanese by uh, many of them native level Japanese by this later period. And so um, those ambiguities are, are very, very interesting, very rich. Um, but I, I wonder if we might just say something about one particular uh, author who, whom you've already mentioned there, Iyosok, uh, because he, I guess, is an example of what you mentioned at the beginning about someone who is known, you know, he's, he's uh, people are aware of him in contemporary Korea, but maybe they're not aware of exactly uh, quite the detail of uh, his works that you bring out here. So could you say a bit more about Hyosok and uh, his kind of, um, what what his work uh, sort of reveals about, about the period compared to how he is per- perceived in Korea today? Right. Hyosok, uh, yes. Hyosok so is generally perceived at, in Korea as like somebody who wrote nostalgic uh, landscape or uh, rural landscapes, right? Who has this nostalgia of hometown and the rural landscape? But this actually is, uh, if you read like uh, his, his entire work, he's like very kind of uh, urbanized, modern, uh, modern person, like a modern boy kind of person. Mm. And he uh, he enjoys like drinking coffee, and he talks about like I want you know enjoying Christmas trees, going to ski in the winter, um, and then he loves butter. All kind of this, uh, yeah. So foreign things. It's like completely opposite of this rural landscape stuff. Um, 
and then he's because I think Dazami no Show is not well known because it was it was written in Japanese, and so some of his work that were written in Japanese were not in this kind of full collection of his work, like Chonjip kind of like all you know like writing. Um, so until like until it's like late nineties two thousands that was like intru- uh, uh, translated the Japanese language writings were translated into Korean. Um, so this this piece I. Um, one piece that I analyze here, and this Ajami no Show, the the story of Tiso, it's it is um, it is interesting. I think in a way that um, shows all this kind of ambiguities, and then um, between Korean Koreanness, what is supposed to be Koreanness, and what is supposed to be Japaneseness, and the Iyosog is a, a person who actually he never studied in Japan, so he studied in Korea, but then by the time you know, he was getting education. There were enough uh, infrastructure that you become fluently in Japanese you know, from the middle school, high school. And then he went to like a Gyeongseong, Keijo, the Imperial University um, mm-hmm. um, in English literature. So he studied, um, you know, with other Japanese colonial um, settlers, Japanese settlers, and then uh, some Koreans in that university so mainly like studying in Japanese right so anyway so this kind of brings into um, like uh, how uh, Koreanness and the Japanese nets can be um, um, and like uh, it's a more flex uh, it has this kind of flexible boundaries mm. and um, oh yeah so, so what I wanted to point out is he's kind of person who actually believes this assimilation or turning into different race or ethnicity it can be very easy um and in the because it's a writing it's it's different from the movies that i can talk maybe a little bit later but then uh in your writing like you can create this illusion illusion that um that one this character uh now speaks complete japanese and then kind of pat you can pass completely at japanese right Mm -hmm. then also vice versa like this japanese woman uh if you wear korean dress and then walk in this like uh palace park uh the formerly the palace but then uh it's a public park then if you walk around there like with your like husband looking men then you can pass as Korean, right? So mm. he brings in, I think, uh, interesting points about at the time what can, um, what is the reference of passing, what cannot pass, and then also how that's also related to class issue. Mm-hmm. It's only for a certain class that who can maintain this kind of uh, certain look and mm. certain speech, and then certain like attitude like that you carry with your body. Um, can have this access to passing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I, yeah, I guess those those uh, nuances, as you say, you do uh, trace very well uh, as they're represented in written literature uh, vis-a-vis film. Um, unfortunately, I think uh, we may not have time to, to delve <laughs> so deeply into the, the film side, but I would, of course, uh, highlight that for, for listeners because it's an extre- extremely um uh, interesting comparison there, as you say, between what you can get away with or what what you know how characters appear when they're on film visually, and also when you hear accents in in films that have spoken uh, soundtracks and so on. Um, that's a, that's a really uh, compelling part of the the latter part of the book here. Um, and you then close out uh, with a, an epilogue that I guess 
reflects somewhat on the kind of post-colonial status and, and um, contemporary relevance of this uh, intimacy and imperial romance in Korea's navigation of uh, of its current uh, position vis-a-vis uh, Japan and the world, um, including, you know, making reference to, uh, I guess, works which listeners may be familiar with, more recent cultural output, including um, Agassi, right, the um, Handmaiden, uh, some very some very popular international uh, portrayals of some of these ambiguities too. Um, but I think, uh, you know, we've uh, had a pretty good <laughs> run through a lot of the books. So I, uh, I don't want to take up uh, any more of your time, which you've very generously given us today. Um, but before we do go, uh, I'll ask you perhaps uh, if you could say a bit more about what you're what you're kind of currently working on, uh, what kind of projects has followed on from uh, the uh, Imperial Romance uh, one. Right. Okay. Thank you so much for that uh, kind of wrapping up things. Um, so one, I guess, like one uh, self publicity is that because I couldn't put everything in the epilogue about and also about the cinema part in the book, mm. I have a I published a separate article on the only just focusing on the cinema part of the sort of uh, the colonial intimacy how, uh, and also post uh, post colonial so post liberation representation of colonial intimacy. Um, so you can look up my article, <laughs> listeners. Great. Well, um, what's the What's the title of that? Do you, oh, do you it has the. It's the title is a transnational. Um, sorry, not transnational. Um, trans war. I'm, I'm forgetting my own title. Oh, yeah, tra- trans <laughs> war. Okay, trans war continuities of colonial intimacy. Got uh, Korean Japanese relationship in Korean cinema, nineteen forties to nineteen sixty. That's Perfect. the title. Perfect. Yes. And also, also the I'm after the the book was done. So I've been actually I've been working on the second book project for quite a long time, which uh, more focus on um, intimacy, but uh, but as like um, and represented in popular literature. Mm-hmm. So I'm still interested in uh, like cultural production, the making of the cultural production, and the kind of. Uh, as a part of the knowledge production and sort of maybe Foucauldian way of like tracing the genealogy. And so how I'm looking at how popular literature uh, writings use like a romantic interest, like a romantic relationship and the intimate relationship as the like main mechanism of um the driven, uh, like a driving power of this popular literature. So it's it's uh, kind of considered as the the tongsok sosar or like um, kind of more uh, secondary uh, novel, um, full of this more vulgar vulgar cultural kind of mm-hmm. um, publications. And so from the colonial era to up to like maybe nineteen sixties, and also there are. Co- um, I, I look at more Cold War, like women's writings and women's magazines in the 50s and 60s. Mm. Um, but cool. I have some like, yeah, side work, side side projects, like looking into like uh, representation of Asia uh, in the Cold War by this kind of Korean writers or 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 and in the film kind of uh, way of the co-production. I'm looking at co-production of Korea and Hong Kong and then Korea and Japan. That's kind of side projects. Though. Excellent. Well, that sounds like a really yeah great continu- continuation of the 
uh, insights that we gained from this book about the earlier periods. Um, so I'm sure we'll look forward a lot to, to seeing those uh, kind of um, come to fruition, if you like. Um, but in any case, Sue, thank you so much uh, again for your time today. Uh, it's been wonderful talking to you. Oh, thank you for having me. It was great talking to you too. And uh, listeners, great as ever to have you listening. Uh, you've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network, and it will be with you again very soon. Goodbye.